Take out your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 21 through 31. Uh, page 941, Romans 3, 21 through 31. Uh, as I said at the beginning, Happy Reformation Sunday. Uh, Tuesday is Reformation Day, the 500th anniversary of the start of the Reformation. It's pretty neat that it's worked out uh, that it is this Sunday that we get to look at the main idea of that Reformation this morning as we look at sola fide, faith alone. And so I saved the event that started it all. We're going to walk through the 95 Theses and, and what that was and what Martin Luther was doing today in, in celebration. Uh, we were away last week. We were in Scotland. We had a great time for the first time in my life on a Sunday morning. I got to preach in jeans and a t-shirt and I really, really liked it. Uh, it was pretty cool. So, so, so watch out. Uh, you might see who knows what will happen. Uh, but thank you uh, for VJ filling in. We were visiting our newest uh, church plant, a missionary over there in Dundee, Scotland, and it was fantastic. I'll give you a lot more information sometime in the future. I hope to go back uh, next year or sometime soon, take a small group of us, go and serve and, and be among them. Um, but I'm just so excited about what, what God is doing over there uh, through Andrew Matheson and through that church. Um, so we'll give you more information about that uh, in the future. Um, but I'm excited to get back into the Word and get back into the five solas. Remember, we're doing this series in celebration of the Reformation. The five solas, sola means alone. These are the five kind of main ideas of the Reformation. These are the five kind of summary statements that, that kind of give like the, the heart of what it is that the Reformers were fighting for. And ultimately, what we believe are, are giving the heart of the Gospel Message. So our first week we looked at sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our sole and ultimate and final authority. There's nothing beside it. There's nothing above it. No popes, no traditions, no, no anything else. Scripture alone is what we go to um, for our authority. Then two weeks ago we looked at sola gratia, which means grace alone. Salvation is by God's grace alone, meaning there is nothing that we add to the equation. There's no, no works, no nothing. And we looked at Ephesians 2, 8. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Right? Salvation is not our own doing. We, we do nothing. It's, it's God's doing. He does everything. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The, the Roman Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation had lost this central gospel truth and had made salvation a joint effort between God and man. And then we looked at how many Protestants today, sadly, have slipped back into teaching that salvation is a combination of God and man. And the Reformers started studying the Scriptures and they said, no, 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 that's, that's not actually what the Bible says. It's grace and grace alone. Anything else is not the Gospel. Anything else is not good news. God does it all. From beginning to end, salvation is His. And we left it there on purpose. But that raises an important question. What about us? Right? What do we have to do? Anything? Is it nothing? As the Philippian jailer cried out in desperation to Paul in Acts 16.30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's answer wasn't nothing. Don't sweat it, bro. Right? Salvation is by grace. No, right? Don't worry about it. You don't have to do anything. No, right? Paul replies... Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe. Have 
faith. Uh, these are the first words out of Jesus' mouth in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So apparently you do have to do something. As the great theologian George Michael puts it, you've got to have faith. Faith, 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 faith. All right, it was a great song. That uh, was a song from my childhood. So, so was, I, was I wrong the last time? Grace alone, all God, but also faith alone? you, you got to have faith? How do these two things go together? That, that's what we want to try to look at and answer this morning. What is faith, and why is the doctrine of faith alone so important, and how does it relate to the doctrine of grace alone? What were the Reformers reacting against in the Catholic Church, and what was it that they were teaching and they were affirming? Again, this is why the Reformation is so relevant, and this is why I want you to know about church history, especially the Reformation. This isn't just some academic informational exercise. This isn't dry, boring, useless history. The Reformers were wrestling with the question, how can man be saved? That's the biggest question. How can a holy, perfect God accept an unholy, imperfect man or woman? How can I go to heaven instead of hell? Right? How can I experience an eternity of blessing instead of an eternity of suffering? How can I be right with God? Guys, that's the most important question. And that's what the Reformation was about. And that's why you better know what the Reformation was about. And you better be able to answer that question. And Catholicism and Protestantism give completely different answers to this central, most important question. The Reformers' answer was that it was only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other way. That's why we need to know what those three things mean. So my goal this morning, I want to try to simplify things because this is so important. We're going to read Romans 3, 21 through 31. But this passage is one of the densest, richest, and most important passages in the Bible. Literally, we could preach on this passage in it for a year and not do all of it, right? So there's no way that I'm going to be able to walk through this piece by piece and do this justice. So what we're going to do, we're going to just dip into this passage, and I want to pull out four key terms for you that you must know, and I want to try to define these four terms for you, right? Well, what must I do to be saved? That's what the reformers are trying to answer. So let's answer that by defining four key words that I want you to understand. We're going to look at righteousness, we're going to look at grace, we're going to look at justification, and then we'll close by looking at faith. And we'll see how those four things together explain what sola fide and faith alone means. Right, so let me, let me read it for you, and then we'll start to walk through it. Um, Romans 3, 21 through 31. This is such a good passage. Go spend all week reading it after this. Uh, I'll read it for you this time. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by 
faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works, but no, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's begin our time um, with a word of prayer. Oh, Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I love uh, this passage. Father, I love the truths uh, that we get to look at this morning. Father, I thank you that you save us uh, through faith and faith alone. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help me to explain these words clearly. Father, help uh, your word be clear um, to us. Help us to understand um, what it means to be right with you and what it was that the reformers were, were fighting um, so hard for. Father, we just want to see Jesus. We want to understand who he is. We want to understand what he has done. Father, we want to understand how we um, can benefit from that and be united uh, to him. Father, and your word's answer is that it is only through faith alone. So, Father, I just desperately ask for your spirit um, to come and work and give us insight and understanding. Uh, Father, I pray for anyone in here who does not know you. Father, I pray that you would use your word uh, by your spirit uh, to grant them life uh, this morning. Father, we ask for you to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we were in Scotland last week, and we had a few free hours. Edinburgh. Uh, it, we couldn't figure it's not Edinburgh. We were like, what is it? It's B-U-R-G-H. Dumb Americans. It looks like Edinburgh. It's not Edinburgh. It's Edinburgh. And they say it really cool. And Edinburgh is maybe the coolest city I've ever been in. It's awesome. Um, we had a couple hours before our flight back on Tuesday in Edinburgh, so we decided to go see Edinburgh Castle. And it was fantastic. Google it. Look it up. Uh, Scotland is just a beautiful country. Edinburgh is a beautiful city and the castle is set up on this picturesque kind of rocky hill that, that kind of overlooks the city and it's just, it's breathtaking. It's really, really neat. Uh, you know I love history so I was, just, I was in my element. At the very top is the oldest building in the city and it's a small little chapel. People were so, I had to duck to get in and I'm not that tall but this little chapel was built in 1130. That's 900 years ago this building was built. That is so cool. I could spend the whole time just walking through and explaining to you all of these things, but I won't. There's just one thing that I want to mention. Again, inside the castle, you go in the walls and you kind of make your way up to the pinnacle. And at the very top, there's this really beautiful kind of impressive building with this square in front of it. And it is the Scottish National War Memorial. It's just a beautiful building. Go, go look it up. And inside, it simply contains... Dozens of books that in every, in, in all those books are written the over 200,000 names of every single Scot who has died since World War One in World War One, World War II, Vietnam, all the different wars. Over 200,000 of them. And it's a small country. The population is a little bit more than half of, of New York City. Sorry, they don't have a ton of people. So this is very 
kind of sobering, cool buildings to kind of go around and look and look at some of the names and see some of the, the memorials. It was really impressive. But when you walk into the front and you go through, there's a wing with all the books, and then you walk into kind of like the main center area, and it's this kind of beautiful little room, the main memorial, and then all along the walls in big, big letters written in this memorial to the dead, uh, it says this. It says, the souls of the righteous are in the hands of God. There shall no evil happen to them. They are in peace. That's what it says in their memorial. The souls of the righteous are in the hand of God. That's interesting. But that implies, I think, also that the souls of the unrighteous are not in the hand of God. The second part says, there shall no evil happen to them. Well, that implies that evil can and will happen to those who are outside of God's hands. And then the last part says, they are in peace. And that implies that those who are not in God's hands are not in peace. Right? So apparently, even according to this little memorial, being one of the righteous is pretty, pretty important. The souls of the righteous are in God's hands. Others are not. And the Bible also affirms that righteousness is a key central idea. You see it right away in verse 21. Look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. You'll see it again in verse 22. It's in verse 25. It's in verse 26. Plus, it's already been all over Romans up until this point. It shows up first in chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul says that it is in the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed. So, what is righteousness? And why is righteousness so important? What is it? Well, it's pretty simple. If you just drop that the weird sounding chus in the middle of the word, you get rightness. Not right. Righteousness is rightness. To be righteous is most basically to be right. God, first and foremost, is righteous. He is and always does what is right. He is good. He is just. He is righteous and he is righteous perfectly. So, and listen, try, try and imagine that, because we basically can't wrap our minds around this. Think about how frequently you are beset with what we consider to be small, little sins. Bad attitudes and complaining and ingratitude, anger, impatience, frustration, lust, jealousy. Basically, every single thing that we do is tainted by these things. It's fascinating to me, I've mentioned this before, that I have never once preached a sermon about God's grace without sin. That's pretty crazy, right? Me, the pastor, the, the holiest one here. Uh, kidding. I'm just kidding. It's a joke. Laugh. Um, I'm here. I'm preaching about God's grace. And I can't even do that without sin. Maybe I'm mad at one of you for sleeping. Uh, maybe I'm prideful at how funny that last joke was or how engaging that illustration was. Maybe I'm more fearful and concerned about pleasing you than I am about pleasing God. Sin, right? It characterizes everything that we do. And listen, that's why any claim that says, hey, we can be good enough, and here's the thing that you can do to get to God, is just garbage, right? Because sin is so intermixed and intertwined with everything that we do. But God, but God is perfectly righteous. Every single thing he has done for all of eternity is right and good and is never tainted by anything wrong or bad. That is amazing, yet it is also problematic for us. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, everyone loves Jesus' nice ethical teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, everyone is not paying attention to what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. But because at one point, Jesus says in Matthew 5.20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of God. That's that's trouble, because the Pharisees were the religious guys, right? They were the ones that everyone thought had it all together. They were the ones who meticulously kept the law. Jesus says, you have to be more right than the ones that people thought were the most right. But again, don't miss the main point. Jesus is saying there that righteousness is required to enter the kingdom of God or heaven. Righteousness is required for eternal life. God is righteous. Therefore, to be with him, to be in relationship with him, you have to be righteous. Right? So righteousness also frequently carries it with the idea of a relational component. It is not just to be right. It is also frequently used to mean to be right with. Right? So most importantly, to be righteous is to be right with God. But then Jesus ups the ante even more a little in a few verses later in Matthew 5:48. This is what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. And everyone's like, oh, it's so ethical and good. We love the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Jesus says. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Whoa. Don't, don't miss that. You're going to miss the whole thing if you miss this. God is righteous. God is perfect. To know him, to be with him, means that you have to be righteous. You have to be perfect. To be right with God, you have to be perfect. God's standard is perfection, and it is nothing less. He does not lower the standard. He will not, and he cannot compromise that perfect standard. I often use the illustration of my daughters. They're, they are the most important and most valuable thing in the world to me. Thus, if any uh, smelly little boy ever wants to be in a relationship with them in 20 years when they can date, then they are going to have to meet an impossibly high standard, right? To be in relationship with my most wonderful daughters, they will have to be the most wonderful boys, right? Good luck uh, with that to, to any of them. But as good and as valuable as my daughters are, God is perfectly good and valuable. So to be in relationship with him, the standard is nothing less than perfection. Your righteousness must exceed the most righteous. You must be perfect. That's righteousness. And that's really, really bad news for you and me. Why? Look down at verse 23. Back to Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not only can I preach a sermon without sinning, you can't listen to a sermon without sinning. We are incapable of doing almost anything without sin. Look back at chapter 3, verse 10, just a few verses earlier. None is righteous. So here, don't, don't miss it. God demands righteousness no one has righteousness. Trouble. So, when Luther, the Catholic monk, before God had saved him, when Luther is studying the Bible, and he gets to Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God is revealed. He was deeply disturbed. Here's what he writes about Romans 1.17. He says, I hated that word, the righteousness of God. 
which according to my teachers I had been taught to understand was the righteousness with which God is righteous and then punishes those who are not righteous. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that God was placated by my works. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God. See, Luther saw this point that God is righteous. Luther, the monk, doing all kinds of monk things and reading the Bible and confessing and doing all, he was the best monk who ever lived, realized all those things that I keep doing are still tainted by sin. God perfectly righteous. I'm like one of the best guys ever, but I'm not even close to God's perfect righteousness. And Luther was terrified. Righteousness. So in summary, right? Who is God? He's righteous. Who are you? You are unrighteous. What does God require of you? Perfect righteousness. That's a troublesome start. So what does God do? Well, let's... Let's get to grace. Look at verse 24. You have to be justified. We'll get to that word next. Skip that word. You have to be justified by his grace as a gift. That's what we looked at last week. You need righteousness. You don't have righteousness. So God has to give to you, to gift to you his grace. Grace is a gift. Over in Romans 6.23, we'll see that the wages of sin is death, right? A wage is that which you work for. It's that which you deserve. You, you do a job. You get paid for it. You've earned it. The verse goes on, though. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, right? So grace is a gift. But the Catholic Church, at the time of the Reformation, had come to understand grace very differently. Why did Luther hate this phrase, the righteousness of God? What had Luther been taught? Well, I want to try and draw a couple distinctions for you that I hope will help clarify some of these differences. For, for the Catholic understanding of grace, I want you to write down and remember the word power. Right? Catholic grace equals power. Right? In Catholicism, especially at that time, grace had come to be seen as stuff. What's the first line of the Hail Mary? Hail Mary full of grace, right? So it's like Mary is kind of like a bottle and she's overflowing with all this grace stuff, right? right? God is righteous. We need righteousness. Righteousness comes by grace. So you better fill up your bottle and get enough grace to be righteous to then meet God's standard. Right? Catholicism absolutely believes that salvation is by grace, so you better get that stuff, as much of it as you can. Well, how do you get it? You get it through the sacraments. And it was a disagreement over this that ultimately set Luther off and sparked this whole Reformation. Right? So it's now, it's Saturday, October 31st, it is 1517. That's exactly 500 years ago on, on Tuesday. Right? The Pope at the time is Pope Leo X, and old Leo has a problem because Leo is broke. Uh, the church is broke. Why? Well, Leo had some extravagant tastes, and Leo at the time is working on building St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Have you ever been to Rome and seen St. Peter's Basilica? It's built here by this story that we are looking at. Now, he, he's building this beautiful uh, building, and he's building this beautiful building with uh, the most famous ceiling in the world, painted by one of the greatest artists in history, Michelangelo. 
Well, if Michelangelo is your house painter, right, you're going to be dropping uh, a lot of money. So, so long story short, Leo's solution was indulgences. And indulgence was part of the sacrament of penance. Again, if you want to understand grace and the Catholic Church, you've got to understand the sacraments. These sacraments are the channels of grace. The sacraments are how you tap into God's rich reservoir of grace. You perform a sacrament, you get a certain amount of grace, and you fill up your bottle just a little bit more. First sacrament is baptism. Baptism literally saves you. It literally forgives and cleanses you of sin. You get baptized as a baby. That grace is channeled to you. Original sin is forgiven. Now you are in a state of grace, but what inevitably, what inevitably happens? Well, you sin, of course, right? So, so now you need more grace. So, so what do you do? The second sacrament, the second plank, uh, the Catholic Church calls it, is the sacrament of penance. You confess, you, you say some Hail Marys, you do whatever, and then you, once you do that thing, you get more grace back, you get absolution, you get satisfaction, you're now back in a state of grace, right? So sacraments are channels of grace, you do them, you get more of this grace stuff. Well, an indulgence was a unique kind of a penance. An indulgence removed either part or all of the punishment due to your sin. An indulgence was literally a pardon for sin. And this became really, really important because of the church's teaching on purgatory, right? The death of Jesus on the cross that frees you from eternal punishment for your original sin, but not from the consequences of your own personal sin. Remember what we looked at two weeks ago, right? You've, you've got to do your best. You, you've got to cooperate and add your good works to his grace. You've got to do the sacraments, but what if you haven't done enough? What if you didn't do more sacraments than you did sin? Well, there's still some sin. The standard is perfect righteousness. So what happens? Purgatory. Again, not found in the Bible, it's not anywhere, but invented by Rome as the intermediary place that you go, uh, that where you, they get you ready for heaven. It's the place where you go, purgatory, where you are purged from your sin. How are you purged from your sin? It's not a pleasant process, and it takes a really, really long time. Some people were supposedly in purgatory for thousands and ten thousands of years, and it was a hot fiery place where you are literally burned and purged from your sin, depending on how bad you were. Wow, well, that does not sound very fun, uh, right? Uh, so I don't want to suffer for thousands of years. Leo wants to pay for his massive church. Let's make a deal. Indulgences. Boom. Here's the problem. Here's the solution, right? The Pope supposedly has control over what they call the treasury of Merits, right? The treasury of merits, right? You can think of it like a box with a lot of this grace stuff in it or something. So again, Hail Mary full of grace. Grace in Catholicism is a power, it's a substance, it's a thing, and some people have more of it than others. Mary was full of it, right? The, the, the saints, they just had a whole bunch of this extra grace. They didn't need all this grace, right? So they had perfect righteousness and more grace on top. So that more grace on top gets put over in this little extra grace treasury box, right? And then the Pope has control over this treasury of merit and he can dish out this grace to people as they 
need it, right? You need some more grace, here's some of Mary's. You need some more grace, here's some of BJ's. You need some more grace, here's some of Sam's. You know, all these super extra good um, people. Pope gives out this extra little bit of grace. So how do you get that extra grace? Again, the Pope was a smart man. You sell it. <laughs> Indulgences. Buy a little bit of grace. There's this little sheet of paper. You pay us for this little sheet of paper. On this paper it says, all right, you're now forgiven from 8,000 years of purgatory. Here you go. That sounds pretty great, doesn't it? Right? It sounds like an awesome deal. And Leo's famous peddler of grace was a man named Johann Tetzel. T-E-T-Z-E-L. Johann Tetzel. And this guy was a master salesman. He was raking in uh, the cash. St. Peter's Basilica is there in large part because of this man. He, he was often heard to say with great emotion, and he says, don't you hear the voices of your wailing dead parents who say, have mercy on me because we are in severe punishment and pain. From this, you could redeem us with just a small little alms. I mean, good grief, right? Who could say no to that? Nope, sorry, mom, I need this dollar. I gotta go get some Starbucks, right? I'm gonna leave you in eternal torment um, so I can go have my coffee. Uh, no, right? Uh, of course that's going to be really effective. He also had these little jingles that he would sing to convince people. The most famous one, he would sing the song, As soon as the coin in the coffer, a coffer's little box, As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Wow, that sounds pretty great. His other one was, Place your penny on the drum, the pearly gates open, and in strolls mum. Man, right? That's pretty... Pretty effective, right? And again, this guy was just killing it. He was selling forgiveness to the people, and he was especially, as always happens with these scams and with the prosperity gospel, is man, he was just just abusing the poor, right? He was just, hey, you know, hey, your mom's suffering. I know you need to eat, but hey, 5,000 years of purgatory, what's one piece of bread? Just give me that money, um, and then bam, here you go, Tetzel, here's all the money. Come buy some grace. For the low, low price of one coin, you can avoid thousands of years of torment. That's, that's pretty effective. Um, but Tetzel made the mistake of starting to creep in on Luther's territory. As, as Tetzel started getting close to Wittenberg in Germany, we're all in Germany um, here, Luther, he, he could remain silent no longer. Right? Luther just became incensed and furious with Tetzel and this whole idea of indulgences. He thought, if the Pope has all this stored up extra merit in the treasury that he controls, man, why not just release it and give it to everybody and get everybody out of purgatory, right? Well, what's he doing? Why is he, why is he selling this? Why charge people? The church he was concerned was making things about external actions and not actually about the condition of the heart. There's no need for the repentance of sins. You just buy this little slip of paper. You buy your forgiveness. And that seemed to be problematic from Luther's perspective as he's studying the Bible more and more. Now again, don't the story is often told incorrectly. Luther wasn't trying to start a reformation. The reformation happened against Luther's will. At this time, in 1517, Luther is still a good Catholic. He's a monk. He's a professor teaching Catholic 
theology, but he sees just some problems here and there with these indulgences, and he wants to do something about it. Again, he has no desire to start what is about to start. He has no desire at this point to break from the Catholic Church. That was unthinkable to him at the time. But it was on October 31st, 1517, that Luther almost accidentally lit a fire that would start the Reformation and change the whole world. Again, the story we're told is extremely dramatic. It actually really wasn't that dramatic at all. You'll see, you can Google it, you'll see pictures of Luther, and there's a door, and he's got a mallet, and he's wearing this cool thing, and he's like slamming the thing onto the door, and people are going crazy. Ah, oh, Reformation, this is going to be great. Uh, that's not what was happening at all, actually. All that happened is, one evening, basically by himself, Luther walks up to the door of the church. Um, the door of the church back then was basically like a bulletin board. This wasn't a unique thing, right? You wanted to announce something, you wanted something to be, people to be aware of something, you go, you put it on the door um, so that people can see it. So Luther walks up to the doors of the church, he takes this document that is now called the 95 Theses, a thesis is just a, a statement, and Luther has 95 separate statements, and he, he nails them there to the door in Germany. Again, no fanfare, not a bunch of people waiting around for this grand act of revolution, because it wasn't a grand act of revolution. He wasn't making a great statement of protest. What he was doing was quite common. Luther was a scholar. He's teaching the Bible, he's teaching theology, and when scholars wanted to discuss or debate a topic of particular interest to them, what do you want to do? What do you do when you debate, want to debate or discuss a topic? You, you post it on Facebook, right? And then people will comment and you'll talk about it. Well, the church door back then was the Facebook of the 16th century. So Luther's saying, hey, here's some things and some ideas that I would like to talk about and to discuss these things. Plus, he writes these theses in Latin, right? Latin is the language of scholarship. Nobody else could read Latin. Right? If you're looking to spark a revolution, you, you rile up the people, and you don't do that by writing something that they can't read. Right? So again, contrary to popular belief, the nailing of the 95 Theses to the church door was simply a summon by Luther for an academic debate. He had serious problems with the abuses of indulgences. He wanted to talk about it, and the 95 Theses list some of his points of discussion. But... Someone got a hold of them. Someone took them off the door. They translated them into German. Right now they're in the language of the people. Gutenberg's printing press has just started taking off. This is a new thing. And then they make copies and they start to spread them. And it just spreads like wildfire over Germany and over the whole Holy Roman Empire. And it could not and it would not be stopped. And the Reformation was begun by this simple, almost innocent action by this monk, Martin Luther. And guys, grace was at the heart of the whole thing. Here's what Luther's wrestling with. Wrestling with is grace something that can be sold? He was furious at the idea of forgiveness being purchased. So in one of the theses, he, he writes this. He says, those who believe they can be certain of their salvation because they have an indulgence letter will be eternally damned. Uh, another one he writes, it is vain to trust in salvation by indulgence letters. And one more, he says, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. See, Luther had begun to see in scripture a fundamentally different definition of grace. You definitely cannot 
purchase it. And he increasingly began to see the whole idea of sacraments helping to fill up your cup with this grace stuff being completely wrong. So, so here's the difference. Here's what he understood and here's what was the beautiful discovery. Catholicism says that grace is a substance. It's a power. The reformers and the Bible began to teach that grace is a person. Grace is not a something, but it is a someone. Right? Salvation is not about getting something called grace. Salvation is about freely receiving God himself. Right? Grace is not stuff. Grace is God. Grace is really just a shorthand way of speaking of the kindness of God in giving us himself. That's the goal here. Right? He's trying to get us back into relationship with him. Grace isn't some weird little power or something that he doles out. He is bringing us back to him in relationship with him. Grace is not a power. Grace is a person. Grace is Jesus Christ. Grace is God giving us himself. Right? So now we have righteousness. Now we know what grace is. It's God giving us himself. But again, we haven't yet answered the question, the how question. How does God give us himself? How can we be right with him? We still haven't answered the big question. How can sinful man be with a holy God? Next point. Look back at verse 24. We are not righteous. We fall short of God, but we are justified by his grace as a gift. Justification is how he does it. And again, this is the main idea of the Reformation. This is the very heart and soul of the Reformation. But again, Rome would affirm the importance of justification. The difference, as Luther and the Reformers that, that followed him taught, was that justification was through faith alone. Luther would repeatedly claim that justification was the article on which the church stood or fell. You get justification wrong, you get everything else wrong. So, so what is it? And what is the difference between Rome and the Reformers? Well, the Greek word, remember, you got the New Testament written in Greek. We have translations of that Greek. Uh, the Greek word for justification is dikaio. But when the Bible was translated into Latin, called the Vulgate, the official translation of, of Rome, the Latin word used was justicare, just, justicare, right? So you hear the word just, which means to, to make uh, which means right or righteous. But the second part of the word comes from the, uh, the Latin word ficare, which means to make. That was complicated. Long story short, Rome understood the doctrine of justification to mean to make righteous. Right? Justification is to make righteous. Right? So, to answer the big question, how can sinful man be right with the holy God, the Catholic Church answered, you have to actually become righteous. Right? God would never actually justify a person until they were actually righteous. So yes, you need grace. Yes, you need faith. But as we've seen, you have to cooperate with these things. You've got to do your part, do the works, do the sacraments to get that grace and then actually make yourself righteous. Right? So in justification, God makes us righteous, and then we do our part as Christ's righteousness is poured into us. It is infused 
into us, right? Does that make sense? You have to become righteous. Before God can declare you right with Him, you have to become a righteous person. You see that? Again, I just stood up here and confessed that I'm not righteous. I can't even preach a sermon without sinning. I'm clearly not righteous. So that's a problem from this perspective. He says you literally have to become righteous. Right, so, so key terms to remember. Again, we've seen power versus person with grace. Now in justification, we're seeing that Rome teaches make righteous, and then you are made righteous by infused righteousness. Make righteous by infused righteousness. Meaning, again, like the grace, it literally has to be poured into you so that you're kind of made a righteous person. But for Luther... Studying the Greek Bible, not the Latin, he realized that this Greek word, dikaio, doesn't mean make righteous at all. The good news of the gospel is not that God makes us righteous. The good news of the gospel is that he declares us righteous. And that is a huge difference. So look down at verse 28. Look at verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In other words, we are justified, we are declared right with God apart from anything that we do, apart from any works. But how? How can a holy God declare unholy, sinful, not right people to be right with Him? Back up to verse 24. Look at verse 24. How are we justified? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Jesus is how. Rome says you need Jesus, but you've got to work with him to become righteous, to meet God's righteous standard. Paul says you need Jesus, and there is nothing that you can do to meet God's righteous standard. That's why you need Jesus. Right? The good news of the gospel is not that we have to live up to God's perfect standard with a little bit of his help. The good news of the gospel is that we can't live up to God's perfect standard, but that our perfect Savior, Jesus Christ, has lived up to that perfect standard for us. Guys, and that's why the concept of substitution is so important. Jesus is my Substitute. He, he takes my place. He is my representative. I was supposed to be righteous. I failed miserably. So Jesus came to be righteous for me. I deserve death for my failure to be righteous. So Jesus came to die that death for me. Rome says God makes us righteous. Luther, following Paul, says that God declares us righteous because of Jesus' finished work in my place. He redeemed me, Paul writes. He bought me back from sin and death. How? By his blood. He died the death that I owed, setting me free from that death. And what did that accomplish? The word there, a fancy word, propitiation. And that word just means satisfaction. God is holy. God is just. Thus, in his goodness, he hates all badness. In his justice, he must do something about injustice. Thus, Paul terrifyingly says back in chapter 1, verse 18, that God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Guys, that's me. That's you. You were under the wrath of God. He is justly angry about your sin and must and will do something about it, and he does in Jesus Christ. Jesus' death satisfies God's wrath. Jesus' death turns that wrath 
away from me. I sinned. I rightly owe death for that sin. Jesus comes and he pays that death for me. So now, with my sin paid for by Jesus, God can declare me righteous. Again, I'm not actually righteous. I'm, I'm a mess. I'm still plagued by sin in and of myself. I am not righteous. But in Christ, I am now counted perfectly righteous. Well, look down at chapter 4, verse 3, just right below where you are. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. It says there, again, Abraham, the, the guy, right in the Old Testament, the best one. Right? It says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And notice, it doesn't say Abraham was righteous. Not that God made him righteous. Guys, Abraham did some awful things. I am a much better person than Abraham. I have never once taken my wife and said, here you go, guy, you can have my wife. Not only did Abraham do that once, he did it twice. <laughs> Abraham was not righteous, right? But it says here that God counted him as righteous. Look at verse 4. Again, Rome says, you've got to do it, merit it, you've got to work for it. Paul says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Again, if you work for it, then you deserve it. It, it can't be grace. It can't be a gift then. Verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Guys, do you, do you see this difference? It's a huge difference. We are not teaching the same thing here. More and more people today are saying, oh, we're getting real close. Reformation's over. We're getting, we're getting close. We're basically teaching the same thing. No. It's fundamentally different. Guys, it is not good news if it is up to me to become righteous. Because I, I'm not. I know myself well enough to know that I could never do it. The good news, though, is that in Christ Jesus, I am counted righteous. How? Again, key words. Remember we said Rome says righteousness has to be infused into me to make me righteous. Paul says the reformers, the whole thing revolved around this one word. Paul says that righteousness is imputed to me to declare me righteous. So make by infuse Catholicism, count by impute in Protestantism, right? Righteousness is either you're made righteous by infusion, Catholicism, Protestantism, you are counted righteous by imputation. Imputation. It means to, to reckon or to credit something to someone's account. That's what we just saw with Abraham. He was counted uh, as righteous. I, I don't become righteous, which, think about this, right? Here's, let's go back to the first point, right? It wouldn't help me to become righteous. Because remember, well, don't forget, what's God's standard, right? It's perfection. Right? The only way it can ever be by works is if you just super lower the standard. Like, oh no, you just have to be decent. Like a little bit more good than bad. No, again, the Bible says you have to be perfectly righteous. Again, so on my best day, I am not even close and I will never be close. But Christ's perfect righteousness is counted as if it was my own. It's like, it's like there's a test no, that you have to pass to get into heaven. I took the test and I got a zero. Right, when a hundred was required. Rome says, hey, with a little bit of help, 
from God and a little bit of effort on your part, you, you know, you, you can do better and you can get that grade up and you can get a passing grade and you can get in. Luther says, no, you have to have a hundred and you can't do it because you've already got sin and you'll always have sin. So what Luther says is no, not that, but what you need is for Christ's perfect test to be slid over on top of my imperfect test. And now I get in not because of anything that I've done, but because his test score was imputed to my account. Right? Do you see the difference there? Rome, make righteous by infusion. Reformers declare righteous by imputation. I am not justified because of anything that I have or will do, but, I am, but it is solely based on the perfect and finished work of Jesus Christ in my place. Right? It, the Reformers started writing about what they called a double, double imputation. Here's why Rome just has to get it completely wrong. Because what happens to Christ? Who is the perfectly holy, sinless, spotless Lamb of God, right? What happens to him? He doesn't literally become sinful, right? That's impossible. He's God. He's perfectly holy. So what happens? My sin is imputed to his account, right? All of a sudden, it's like my sin is transferred over to his account, uh, he is now counted as if he is me. He is now counted as a sinner, and he pays that debt that I owe, right? Imputation, my sin to him. But then the good news is also is that his righteousness is imputed back to my account, right? That's the exchange. That's the double imputation. He gets credit for my sin. I get credit for his righteousness. And now I am right with God. He died so that I could live. I meet, I meet, this is made. I meet the perfect standard of righteousness of God himself. That's pretty cool. Not because of me, but again, solely because of Jesus Christ. Does that, does that make sense? Right? Are you seeing, are you seeing the difference? Luther came to realize that if righteousness is imparted to us by grace, but then it rests on us to keep that up and to do it and to stay in that grace, then salvation cannot be by grace at all. Yes, Catholicism teaches grace, 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 but then when they add all this other stuff, when they specifically deny grace alone, they ultimately really, ultimately really do make salvation by works because it's up to us. It depends on us and our merit, not on Christ and on his merit freely given to us alone. God declares us to be righteous. That's what justification is. We are now declared by God to be right with God based solely on the work of Jesus Christ in our place. Justification. I guess we still, it was sola fide, so we need to get there, I guess. Let's get to faith. Uh, sorry. Um, that's, let's do, run through this last point real quick. That's all that God has graciously done for us. Salvation is from beginning to end. It's all Him. But again, we still haven't answered our question from the very beginning. What do we have to do? Right? If it's all God, if it's all grace, does that mean we do nothing? Actually, no. Right? If grace is not a power, but a person, if grace is God giving us himself, if justification is, is, is his declaring us righteous, then through what means do we access these wonderful things? How do we personally benefit from all this? And the great truth of the Reformation that Luther rediscovered was that it was only through faith alone. Look at the end of verse 25. God has done all of this for us, justification, grace, redemption, propitiation, to be received by faith. Down at verse 28, again, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. 
And the main point, that it is not in any way by works. That it is not based on anything that we do. We don't merit, we don't earn, we don't do, we don't work. We rest and we receive. Faith, faith is an empty, is an empty hand. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I claim. That's faith. It's simply belief. It's trust. It's what we read in Romans 10. If you believe, you will be saved. Nothing else is required. Faith alone. But again, we're so confused by faith these days. We get it so wrong. I just, I don't have time to get into it in detail. But most churches are teaching that faith is the thing that we have to do. And then once God sees that faith, then he'll save us. We do faith. God then gives us salvation. But if that's what faith is, then again, we're no different. We're no different than Rome. Right? We've now made faith a work. Something that we have to do to merit heaven. But that's the opposite of faith. So what is it? First and foremost, faith itself is a gift. Again, it's not something that we have to stir up in ourselves so that God will save us. It's something that God has to give us. Ephesians 2.8 from two weeks ago. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. The whole thing, including the faith, is the gift of God. Romans 12.3 talks about the measure of faith that God assigns, that, that God gives. Hebrews 12.2 describes Jesus as the author of our faith. What does an author do? He gives life. The author is the one who, who creates something. Jesus creates and gives to us faith. It is a gift. Guys, listen, as I said two weeks ago, we're actually not saved by our faith at all. We're not saved by our faith at all. We are only saved by the object of our faith. We are saved solely by the grace of God given to us through the work of Jesus Christ. He does the work, not us. And he applies that to us through the gift of faith. Faith is the cord that binds us to Christ. Again, faith doesn't save. Jesus saves. The object of our faith saves. We just went to Scotland. I love flying. I have great faith in airplanes and pilots that they still will get me where I need to go safely. I trust them completely. Melissa does not. Right? She, she, she hates flying. You know, she's, an, she's an anxious flyer. She has little faith in airplanes. Uh, when we board a flight together, I have a very big, strong faith in the plane, and she has a very small and weak faith in the plane. But which one of us gets to our destination more safely? Neither of us, right? Again, because we both equally get there safely, because it's not our faith that saves us, right? It's the pilot, and it's the plane, it's the object of our faith that saves us. Big faith saves, little faith saves, because it's about the object. Where are you placing your hope and in your trust? Faith is not something that you can do. I think so often in churches we teach faith as a thing that we do. We put our faith in our faith is I think what we generally do. When the Bible says, no, 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 we put our faith in Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can save us. Believe in Jesus. That's, that's faith. I've explained so many times that again, I'm skipping everything. That means so much more than believe things about Jesus. The acronym I've given you before, if you want to understand faith, it's CAT. It's K-A-T. CAT. Knowledge is, or faith is knowledge, it's assent, and it's trust. Knowledge, you got to know something about Jesus. you got to know who he is. you got to know what he's done. You can't believe in something if you don't know about it. Assent means just to agree with it. You say, yes, I believe that that is true. I know things about Jesus. I believe that those things are true. But James, in James 2, sarcastically says, hey, if you're at that point, 
great job, you believe even the demons do that. Right? You, you now have demon faith. Good, good work. Um, right? because, because demons know about Jesus, and they believe that the stuff they know about Jesus is true. That's not saving faith, because true faith is the T. It is no, it is assent, and then it is trust. Guys, faith is trust. It is recognizing that I don't have righteousness, and that there is nothing I can do to meet God's perfect standard except give up and give myself over to Jesus Christ who has met that perfect standard for me. Listen, I know that I'm saved, and I can confidently say that, not because of anything that I can point to, oh, look at all this fruit, look at all this good stuff I did, and look at that sermon, that was really good, or really all No, I can confidently say that I'm saved because I fully and 100% believe that there is nothing that I can do to save myself, and that I have no hope in myself. God, who for 33 years has made it painfully clear to me that there is none good and none righteous here, and so my only hope is Jesus Christ. He is my righteousness. He is my hope, and my trust is fully in Him, and I am depending upon Him to get me through. Justification is only possible by trusting him. That's faith. Trust Jesus. That's what the reformers were fighting for. No works, nothing for you to add to the equation. God has done all the work for you in Jesus. Now rest and believe in him. Let's stop there. Who is God? He's righteous. Who are you? You're unrighteous. What does God require of you? Righteousness. So what does God do? He gives to you Christ's righteousness as a gift. He gives you Jesus himself. And how does he give that to you? What's the means through which he does it? Only through faith alone. The whole Reformation was about this one point. We are justified. We are saved only through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. That's the heart of the Reformation, and that's the heart of the gospel. Jesus Christ. Let's stop and let's close um, with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. Lord. Father, it takes me so many words to say what your word says uh, so simply and so clearly. Um, so, Father, I pray that your word would be clear. Father, I pray that you would drive us to Romans 3. Show us the great truth of justification by faith alone. Father, I thank you that you have declared your people to be right with you, not because we are right, not because we are good, but because you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be right and good and to live and to die and to rise again in our place. Father, that is our only hope as Jesus. So Father, I just pray for anyone in here who does not know you, anyone in here who this is new and foreign and confusing, Father, I pray that you would make it clear. Father, I pray that you would open their eyes. I pray that you would show them their sin and show them Jesus Christ as their Savior. Father, bring them from death to life. Grant them uh, repentance and faith. Father, help us to believe. Father, I believe. Help my unbelief. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.